You're listening to The Dietitian Diaries, brought to you by Watch Farm Foods. I'm Sue Bites, a registered dietitian, and I'll be discussing all things nutrition-related with our podcast guests. Before we get started on this, our fourth episode, I just want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Watch Farm Foods, for their support. And without them, this podcast simply wouldn't have been possible. They currently have something very special planned for a selection of their customers, thanks to celebrity dance coach Arlene Phillips. Delivery drivers will be performing to the song Bring Me Sunshine at the people's doors to spread some cheer this winter. And so be sure to follow at SNWFF on Twitter and see how they get on. So now on to our podcast episode, and we've got a really great one lined up for you this month. So let's get stuck in. In this new episode of the podcast, I'll be welcoming Leslie Carter, who is Head of Health Influencing at AGK, and she's also Clinical Lead at the Malnutrition Task Force. Leslie and I will be discussing a range of topics, from the roles of AGK and Malnutrition Task Force, right through to what strategies and resources are out there for us as healthcare professionals. We'll be looking at the importance of nutrition and hydration for people at risk, challenges that the malnutrition task force might be facing supporting these older adults, social implications around loneliness and access to food, and what we as healthcare professionals can do to raise awareness and prevent malnutrition in older adults. Welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast, Leslie, and thank you for joining me today. So I'm so excited to have you here today, Leslie. Uh, We've got such a broad range of experience that our listeners will be really pleased to hear about, um, not just on older adults, but uh, the role of nutrition as well. But just before we get into that, um, I always like to set the scene a bit and I'd love to hear a bit about your pathway into the role that you've got today and your professional background. So can you tell me a little bit about that? I've always been a nurse. And I still have my registration and it's really important to me. So I started my nursing career when, as a cadet nurse in the 1970s. I went from cadet nurse all the way up to director of nursing, which was so, I was so proud of that because I was able to influence. I then went to the Department of Health, which again was so exciting because it allowed me to again influence more from a policy level, where I'd been influencing from a practical level before. So that was really exciting. And a couple of the things that I did there was introducing and developing the Dignity Champions, which was so successful. And then from there, I went on to looking at the National Dementia Strategy. So I was the, the lead for London, and I listened to so many people about dementia and the issues that they had, the good, the bad and the ugly. And I was able to bring that together and feed that right into the national programme. So after 43 years in the NHS and the DH, I then went to look after my mum. She was dying. She came to live with me. And I gave her a a really good death, which was quite satisfying for me and for the family. But what it did make me realise was how difficult it was to navigate your way around all this. And then I went for another job, which I was a registered manager of a local care home. So I commissioned it. I was only ever going to go for 18 months. And I commissioned it and I set up some really good end of life care in that care home. So I was really pleased that I was able to use that personal experience into something practical. Yeah. 
So then I went off to HUK. I had, um, I just applied for this job, which said influencing, health influencing policy and practice. And I thought, oh, well, I'll go and have a see. I'm sure I won't get it. I know nothing about charities. And I did get it. And I have to say, it's one of the most wonderful jobs I've ever had. Oh, I was only going to stay a little while, but <laughs> I've been there a long while. And I really don't want to go anytime soon because I'm really enjoying what I do. So what is it What is it that you do at the moment? And what, is you, what are you most passionate about in your role in Age UK? Well, I guess it's because I lead professionals and practice. And in that is included the Malnutrition Task Force. And what that means is that I really speak to practitioners who are on the job. So in my portfolio, I have the end of life. So I talk to lots of people about end of life care, um, particularly through the pandemic, a lot with care homes, because I'm interested in what they say. And I want to take that back. And I belong to the Ambitions Partnership, End of Life Partnership which is an NHS England, and I'm able to take this first-hand experience and share it with practitioners. So now that you're, 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 you just touched briefly on the COVID-19 pandemic there, and there's so many things I want to ask you, including about that, but I suppose one thing that I know Age UK have been really involved in looking at is how loneliness, not just during the pandemic, but, but since and before, has really disproportionately affected older adults. And I wanted to ask you, really, what signs do you think healthcare professionals can look look out for with their clients in terms of loneliness? And what can we do to support them? So, yes, before the pandemic, people were lonely. There was loneliness out there. And this would be because of, usually because of bereavements losses and accumulative effect so not thinking definitely just about death of a partner which is what everyone thinks about but you know changes in your circumstances retiring doing something different grandchildren growing up who you may have been caring for your walking partner might have died the dog might die all those sorts of things are accumulative and people have told us that they make them feel make themselves feel really lonely and I think that when the pandemic came, people were immediately shut down. So throughout the pandemic, we did some insight work and we thought we needed to look at how the pandemic was affecting people. And what we really learned was number one was this huge loss of confidence and the fact that people actually didn't want to go out because they felt too afraid. They are extremely anxious about catching COVID more so now yeah because they they know that they are a lot physical physically less able than they were before they they say that they've got quite a loss of motivation they can't really be bothered can't be bothered to get out and to go out because mm. of that confidence that's gone what do you think are the signs that we could use well, to spot somebody who's feeling like that i think it's quite difficult to do that because Older people are really stoic and they don't want to make a fuss. They don't want to really talk about their loneliness. And some people feel quite ashamed that they're lonely. So I think you have to really look behind the person, as we're always saying, but have they had any losses? Do they have a long-term condition? Do they need, have they missed going to see their GP? It's those sort of things that we need to be looking at. 
And we also need to look at people who have changed their position through the pandemic. So people have become carers. They weren't expecting perhaps to do that. People with living with long-term conditions, we've seen that their long-term condition has deteriorated or become more bothersome for them. So that is what healthcare professionals need to look at. I know HUK have got lots of systems set up in place to support people. Is there anything around that those systems that you could tell us as healthcare professionals that we might be able to access and signpost our clients to? Well, on the HUK website, there's a whole COVID hub. And there are lots of other, um, I mean, that's just one separate thing. And then, of course, there's all our leaflets about how to do particular things, how to access things, what to do when you're in a situation. I think that Age UK, we listen to people a lot. We're always listening. And one of the ways we listen and change the way we do things is through our information and advice line. Now, the information advice line is open 365 days of the year, and there will be always somebody there to give you some advice at the moment. And then if it's more complicated, get someone to ring you back. So we as and healthcare professionals could access that if we if we yes, wanted to. Anyone. And how would we refer somebody, for example, to the Age UK befriending scheme or the volunteer schemes? I think it's to find out what's locally available. So, for example, Age UK do a befriending, they do a telephone call. It could be that somebody goes to visit them in the house once the COVID is, has all gone. But we know that our befriending, telephone befriending, increased. I can't remember the exact amount, but it, it went mad. And everybody, all our um, people who work for Age UK were all on the telephones befriending somebody. And I think it works really well because that person has a dedicated person to talk to them once a week. The volunteers can share a cup of tea or have a drink while they're talking to them. Exactly. We know that eating with other people increases our food intake quite substantially, don't we? And that's one of the things that that, um, nutritional professionals we've been concerned about during the pandemic, really, is this... uh, the fact that we're driven to eat with other people and we eat more when we're with other people and we make we more do of because celebrating going out for morning coffee having a bit of cake birthday lunches lunches teas afternoon tea all of that yeah um, so people have missed that so much so one of the things in our booklet on the mtf website was it said if you are feeling lonely and you just can't be bothered to eat because you don't want to eat alone is to put the telly on or do it with a favourite tele programme or the radio. And one lady, she sent me an email about this, and she said, I never thought of doing that. She said, but I've been listening to The Archers for years and years and years. And she said, I have my evening meal with The Archers. She said, I set the table, I put the radio on, and I eat sitting at the table with my friends, she said, because I know everybody intimately on The Archers. I've been listening. (laughs) I just wanted to pick up, you mentioned, you said MTF, and by that you mean the Manutrition Task Force. I do. And I have got the website link here, which I can just say. It's www.malnutritiontaskforce.org.uk. And that was where you said there were some great resources. We know that malnutrition is a big problem in the UK with about one in 10 older adults um, at risk. And most of those people living in the community and much of that malnutrition is going unrecognised and untreated. So I'd really love to hear a little bit about your role with the Malnutrition Task Force and 
um, what sort of resources there are available for us as healthcare professionals to access. The MTF is such an interesting role and I've seen it develop over the years. And I'm really quite pleased with the way that it's developed, that so many people know about it now. I wish I could take the credit, but I don't think I can, because there's so many people who are so passionate and very knowledgeable about food and hydration. And they've become involved and they've they've helped us all spread the word. We About three years ago, we decided that the website had to be our priority because the MTF is a very small team. We are funded by external funders and we have very small amounts of money. So we have to make everything go a long way. And we felt that the website was quite a good way of doing it. So it has all sorts of information, like a one-stop shop. So on there, we have particular tools. So you will all know about the MUST tool. But we also have on there the nutrition wheel and the Patients Association's nutritional checklist. Oh, I've seen these. So can you tell us what what they're, what, what questions, sort of questions they actually ask on there? Well, they both um, ask similar questions. So it's about, you know, have you lost any weight? How are you feeling? You know, do you have trouble eating? So those kinds of questions. And then dependent on what your answer is, on the nutrition wheel, you turn the wheel and then you'll get a suggestion. But the basis of all these things is if you've identified somebody at risk, then it is your responsibility to jolly well do something about it. And to do something about it could mean to refer on, to give some ideas, to give them some of our leaflets, to put them in touch with somebody else so that people know that they are at risk of becoming malnourished and they know what to do about it. So the patient wheel and the the patient's nutrition checklist, they're really good ways of starting a conversation with somebody, aren't they? They are. To raise that awareness and maybe help people think that actually losing weight isn't an inevitable part of of ageing. But then there's really good ways of actually assessing risk and then signposting on to further help. So we know that a lot of women have been watching what they eat, be on a diet forever. And if we are saying to them, you know, it's not natural to be so thin, you mustn't lose any more weight, and that you should perhaps try to eat a little bit more full fat or different food, you know, they're quite horrified. And so we just need to be have that proper education out there that people can see that actually... As you age, protein becomes really important. But it's no good us saying protein becomes really important because what does that mean? You know, we need to be very explicit about things. And luckily we have colleagues, the BDA's website is really fantastic for giving that sort of information. And I feel as healthcare practitioners, we need to be really careful that we're not dictating to people and say, oh, you must have this, you must have that. But actually, what we do is give people the information and let them try to take that information themselves. Yeah. And, and change the tailoring of that information to individual preferences as well. Because one exactly. size doesn't fit all, does it? Well, it, it certainly I, I, doesn't. 
And that's why I really love a lot of the resources that I've seen on the Malnutrition Task Force website is that there's such a range of practical suggestions in there that healthcare professionals can really guide people to find what what is the underlying cause of their poor food intake and therefore what are the most useful solutions and how can they be tailored to you as an individual. I think that's what we're we're really good at doing as healthcare professionals, isn't it? Is tailoring that that advice and giving support. And unpicking what is undernourishment about what is malnutrition about really so we know that there's disease related which is something quite different from people who are in the community who are not particularly ill they don't have a long-term condition that bothers them that they are just struggling in the community without any contact with services and what we can't find out is how somebody gets from being relatively okay, thank you, managing myself, to becoming really malnourished and perhaps have a fall and then are taken into hospital. And then families are flabbergasted, isn't it? So raising awareness early on when somebody Very says they're advertised for or whether their food intake has gone lower, or if they're struggling with eating or cooking or shopping. Uh, or whether they're having some unintentional weight loss. So finding that out early is what you're saying, really, Leslie, isn't it? Yeah. It's probably worth mentioning at this point as well is that um, somebody actually could be uh, a normal weight or even overweight and still be at risk of malnutrition, couldn't they? Oh, yes. We forget Um, this all the time. Yeah, so they still might be at risk of the immunity um, impairment or the loss of muscle or the effects on mental health as well, really, of of having a poor food intake. I agree. It's really good when a a tool measures that the percentage of unintentional weight loss, isn't it? And there's lots of of good screening. And I noticed the Malnutrition Task Force uh, links into the um, self-screening tool online as well, which is really, again, I think, empowering for people to use, isn't it? Yes, it is. So thinking about solutions, maybe, and practical solutions, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, home delivery of of meals in the community, really, uh, as part of the support package that people can get. And I wondered what your views were about the role they might play in helping prevent and manage malnutrition. Well, I think home delivery is really good. And there's so many types of home delivery, isn't there? I think that having a regular home delivery driver is a really important thing. And I think that giving those drivers the tools to share with people when they go into people's homes, that they can give out leaflets, that they can raise the awareness of what people should be looking out for, how to recognise that somebody's at risk. And I think they have a really big job to play. I think that frozen food is really important because you can put that in the freezer. It is always there. It's always there to stand by you. If you feel that the shopping hasn't come or you can't be bothered, you've got something to give yourself a really nutritious meal. I guess the other thing I think is really important with uh, the home delivery of meals is the fact that you've got nutritional standards there in in the meal so that, you know, you know, you're having a source of protein, you know, there's going to be vegetables with the meal. And also that empowerment of, of people making a choice. So if their taste has changed since they've got older and they didn't used to like spicy food, maybe looking at that ability to actually choose something like a curry or a chilli. I certainly found it really, really motivating to get people's interest back in in food is to actually move away from that tea and toast, tea and biscuits to actually really trying to get back into enjoying food. Do you agree? Oh, I do. I definitely do. And to rekindle that interest in food, cooking, eating, all of that. 
And I think with home delivery in, in any guise, it's to help people, especially the older, older people, that it's okay. You're not being lazy. We have to try and change mindsets that it's okay to do that and they are nutritious and that we should try to help people to order these foods because sometimes they find it hard. But I do know that that some home deliveries still take it by telephone, uh, which is amazing because I've heard people say, I can't order online, I can't work it out, but I always go there because they still have the phone number. And I think Absolutely. that's really important. We have to make the, the healthy choice the easy choice for people, yeah, don't absolutely, we? absolutely. No, I agree with that. You've inspired us with loads of great work that is going on out there, and especially things that have been done during the pandemic. And I've gone away with loads of inspiration and motivation today. But two questions about the future, really. Um, How do we move forward and begin to combat some of these long-term effects of the pandemic on older adults, specifically in relation to nutrition, I guess? I think that we all have to learn how to identify the risk. We have to learn how to have that conversation, how to measure it, and then what to do about it, who to tell, how to follow it up. And we really need to, if we find somebody who we feel is going on that downward spiral, we need to make sure that the GP is involved and that that person is referred on to appropriate services. Because if we don't do it, then I wonder who will. And I think aligned to that, we have to keep raising the awareness of malnutrition or undernutrition or overnutrition because you know not eating a good diet is going to affect everybody because we know that having good food is the underlying protection for us all and without it we'll be falling all over the place we'll be admitted into hospital we'll be catching things we won't get better and it will be a drain on the nhs and, and the social care on mental mental health mood and quality of life as well we sometimes exactly. forget about don't we well it's the whole gambit isn't it you're so right there sue so right And then I think we have to remind people how to eat well. And that means talking about home delivery, fresh food, going to different places, cooking different food, admitting if you can't do it and asking for help. And like you said, the social eating earlier as well, encouraging (laughs) people to to, to try and make it a social occasion as part of their day. Exactly. I think so. And I think we have to just support people to be able to do but for intergenerationally to be able to support older people, for older people to be able to support themselves and to help voluntary sexual organisations get back to the level that they were before the pandemic, because they were the people who kept those local communities going. And of course, they were the local communities that fed people in those very early days of the pandemic when people actually had nothing. So I guess really just to summarise what you're saying there, you're looking at early interventions, recognising early when somebody might, there might be a problem, and then looking at really practical person-centred interventions that, that are evidence-based but might support them, and using the great resources that both Age UK and Malnutrition Task Force have got there. I think that's exactly right, Sue. Well done. <laughs> it's a good summary of what you said, is it? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> 
So thinking about what other things are the malnutrition task force involved in at the moment, Leslie? Going back to the website, again, we have been thinking how we can make it much more accessible and share more practical things. So we're going to develop two new pages this year. The first page is going to be for all sorts of professionals. So professionals like dietitians, um, nurses, but also for people who work in care homes and domiciliary care, because we think that people in domiciliary care particularly are there, they need to start measuring the risk that older people are about becoming malnourished. So we'll be starting to do that over the year. And we will also going to do a new research page. And we'll come together to choose interesting articles, research articles, and try and make a summary of them and try and group them into areas of interest. So if somebody from a care home wanted to look at research they probably wouldn't have the time to trawl through things so we would try to make it there very accessible for people who perhaps are not used to reading research but really want to know what some of the outcomes are that's a great excited about that and then of course the other main thing will be UK Malnutrition Awareness Week, which will be the fifth year this year. And because of the pandemic, we've had a couple of years when we've been really slow at deciding what we were going to concentrate on. But this year, we are right thinking about it now. So we will, in the next few months, in the next few weeks, be coming up with what our themes are going to be, how people can join in with us, what it is that we want to do. And this year, we're thinking that we want to follow up from last year where we asked people to put some of their challenges up. What was their challenge to good nutrition for older people? So I've got those challenges and we're going to ask people to put a little bit more meat on the bone. And perhaps we, as the MTF, are going to challenge the NHS, social care maybe politicians about why this is continuing to happen and oh, what actually they're going to do about it. Yes, I'm a bit afraid, but we think that that's what we're going to do this year. <laughs> that's because a great someone's idea. someone's got to speak out. And it would be a great way of sharing best practice for overcoming some of those obstacles, won't it? I think so. So I'm quite excited about that. Oh, that's great. So Thank watch you. this space. <laughs> yeah, watch this space. <laughs> How could we as healthcare professionals get involved in Malnutrition Awareness Week if we're not already involved in that? Well, I think one of the ways is to join our stakeholder list. So go onto the website and register. So then everything that we send out, you will be involved in. If you don't fancy doing that, keep an eye on Twitter. So all the time I tweet out things. So as soon as we decide we're going to do something new, I'll tweet that out. And we will be having a UK Malnutrition Awareness 2023 on the website and as things change and as we have more information we'll put that on there so you can always access it through that well that was absolutely fascinating Leslie I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time and your wealth of experience uh, from you know from from your nursing days to your care home days to to looking after your mum the practical things that you got from that right up until your your role with Age UK and Manutrist Task Force today so I want to say thank you so much that's been inspiring oh thank you for inviting me I've really enjoyed it that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to Leslie for joining me in my Dietitian Diaries, which has been brought to you by Watch Farm Foods.
If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to the podcast series. Before we leave you, in case you're not familiar with it, I wanted to mention the Wiltshire Farm Foods softer food range, which has been created for people with swallowing difficulties. These are pre-prepared to save time and effort and they can be delivered to the customer's home to help people with dysphagia to dine with dignity. They meet the descriptions in the various IDSI categories for texture modification and interesting they include main courses, desserts, afternoon tea and breakfast items which provide the variety which we've seen today is really important for stimulating appetite. To help people at risk of malnutrition or with poor appetites as we've been discussing today, there's also a selection of mini meals in the range which are more manageable portion sizes but still high in both calories and protein. If you're interested in learning more about the range of modified texture foods from Wiltshire Palm Foods, then please visit specialistnutrition.com to organise a tasting session with your team. For all the latest sneak peeks and updates on our next episode of the podcast, follow at SNWFF on Twitter. Alternatively, check out the podcast section that's coming soon to the Wiltshire Palm Foods website. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit subscribe and consider leaving us a five-star rating or review. Finally, thank you so much for taking time to listen to the Dietitian Diaries, which has been brought to you by Watch Farm Foods. Mm-hmm.